Jesus loves him, but the rest of us think he's a putz. It's the Drew Marshall Show. Hey, thanks for tuning in, folks. Well, what a crazy day. It's our Easter special. We've had Harry Manx live in studio. We've had uh, DJ uh, Candace Cameron Bure from Full House. And uh, now for another fantastic guest on the show. A starting knuckleball pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays, Ari Dickey, is one of the unique figures in professional sports. Noted for both his uh, off-field uh, um, eloquence, unlike myself, and his on-field accomplishments. In 2012, the New York uh, Mets, he became the only knuckleball pitcher to win the National League Cy Young Award. Uh, but the road to glory was certainly strewn with hazards. In 96, uh, Dickey was with the Texas Rangers uh, uh, number one draft choice, basically, and then uh, routine physical revealed that his right elbow was missing uh, a part, <laughs> and his lifelong dream of becoming the big, you know, major league ball player kind of went down the gurgler a bit. He was supposed to uh, sign for an eight hundred and ten thousand dollars signing bonus, and they only gave him seventy five grand. So anyway, look. Long story short, he is Mister Knuckleball. He is a Toronto Blue Jay, and he is one of the reasons that many people are tuning in right now to our show. R. A. Dickey, thanks for joining us, man. How you doing? It's my pleasure. I'm doing well. Thank you, Drew. Uh, you know, after twelve years of doing the show, you are my first Major League Baseball player guest, and um, I, I, um, I was thinking about that. Why, why have I not had any ball players on the show? And and I couldn't come up with an answer, but I, I've I've really wanted you to be a guest on our show because you're a knuckleballer, and I was a punter. And kickers, goalies, and knuckleballers are all weird. True story? Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> I, I prefer the word eccentric, but oh. you can choose weird. Okay, like. all right. No, no, I'm down with that. That's good. <laughs> it has, um, you know, the fellow Blue Jay and your young Padawan, Daniel Norris, pressed any charges yet? No, not yet. He, uh, in fact... Um, he got a big kick out of it, and so did I. He's a he's a, a really good guy, and I'm looking forward to spending some good time with him this year. Talking about the fact that uh, R.A. stole his VW van, and uh, would you drive it out onto the field down in, uh, in Florida? <laughs> yeah, like yeah, and just true to form, he uh, you know he leaves the keys in the driver's seat, <laughs> so it's not like I had to fish through any pockets. Um, I just went out there and, and claimed it and drove it onto the the AstroTurf field that we practice on from time to time. That's funny, man. When I was uh, playing ball, I used to take the GO bus from Richmond Hill down to Finch, get on the subway from Finch and go east out to Scarborough. Kennedy was the furthest line, I think. I met some guys out there in a VW van, and we drove across the 401 to Burlington during rush hour in a VW van. You know how handy that thing is when you have to go to the bathroom in a traffic jam? Oh, man, I can only imagine that one. The one that Drew has um, is, you know, that's his his house as well, so it's been real. It's been really lived in. Did you say the one that Drew had? You mean Daniel? I mean Daniel. I'm sorry, forgive me, Daniel. Yeah, that's okay. You know, because I'm Drew, so that works. Your favorite artist? Who would it be? Uh, uh, my favorite artist, um, musical artist. No, no, painting. Oh, painting. Um, well, you know, I, I love the impressionists. Um, every time I'm in New York, I try to. If I've got some free time, I'll I'll head over to the museum and, and check them out. But I I really enjoy. Uh, um, Monet and and um, Monet and uh, you know I, I I just like art in general, so I, I can appreciate something just about about every every kind of uh, medium there is out there. I can find something to appreciate about it. I was in uh, Saint Paul de Vence, Vence, however you say it, in France 
a couple of years ago, and that's where Chagall and Picasso, and Matisse, yeah. and all those guys used to hang out. Have you ever been there? No, I haven't. But it sounds awesome. I'd yeah. love to do that when my, no, my career's over. So I don't. Uh, this is horrible, and I really hate to start off an interview with R.A. Dickey like this. But dude, I don't watch baseball. <laughs> I d- I'm sorry. I, please don't take offense to that. I don't. If I didn't play, I don't think I'd watch it. Okay. All right. <laughs> so the closest I've come is I dated a girl in California whose sister was married to Randy Robinson, a big, giant, red-haired pitcher. He was with Cincinnati Reds for a little bit, and. And then I remember back when I was living in California, Sports Illustrated came out with an April Fool's edition about a pitcher they found throwing rocks on a beach with a construction boot on one foot and a bare foot on the other foot, and he could smoke pop bottles, like just destroy them from like a thousand feet away with rocks. And then they brought him to some training camp, I don't know if it was L.A. Dodgers or something, that had the media all around. It was just a huge, huge April Fool's joke. Do you remember that at all? I did not remember that, Riggs. It sounds like a good one now. Oh. It's, it's- it seems believable because of how many different stories there are about guys that, you know, they find off softball diamonds or playing pickup ball. I mean, those stories are really out there, so it's believable. Yeah. Well, here's what I've picked up so far in doing the research on, on you so I didn't look like a complete tool in this interview. You try to pitch to contact. You want to throw strikes. On your best night, you can pitch to locations. Other than that, you pitch to height, and then the ball does whatever it wants to do. Uh, your fastest knuckleball is 82. Your fastball is 85. No one really wants to start out as a knuckleballer. It's a it's a pitch born of desperation as you uh, that you turn to because you can't do anything else. You want the ball to rotate a quarter revolution between leaving your hand and hitting the plate. 85, let's see, 85 to 80 percent knuckleballs. That's what you throw. The rest are changers or sinkers. Throwing one as slow as 59 miles per hour. Sometimes half a revolution. Sometimes a full revolution comes out, and those suckers are gone. True story. Yeah, all that's pretty accurate. You know, uh, within a degree or two, I would say you're right on the money. Okay. That's all I care about. I just, I have to be right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's pretty accurate. Okay. You know, it's uh, it's not an easy craft, but I, I, I love I love the journey of becoming a knuckleballer, you know. Hope it is the quintessential human delusion, simultaneously the source of your greatest strength and your greatest weakness. Who said that? Um, I think that was the architect in The Matrix, wasn't it? Nice. Nice, but that—that's your—that's your life. I mean, you know, the way you pitch is your life story. That's a thing, right? I mean, I was talking to some guys who are fans of yours, and they're baseball junkies, and I'm sure they still trade cards, even though they're in their forties. And um, and they don't—they don't know about your mess. You know, they haven't picked up the book. You have just come from some bad junk. So let's just skim through the bad junk because, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but. So here's the deal. You're all set to buy the engagement ring, and then some trainer notices that in a picture of you, your your arm is hanging in a certain way that your elbow shouldn't be hanging, and, and then never got a chance to meet Nolan Ryan. That sucks. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, a tough introduction to the world of professional sports, I'll say that for sure. Um, and, you know, I, I was asymptomatic my whole life. You know, I played quarterback in high school and, and pitched uh, collegiately and on the Olympic team and never – never had an injury and so when they discovered that in an MRI that I didn't have the existence of the ulnar collateral ligament in my right elbow I really didn't know what to think um it was it was tough because I didn't think that um they were going to want to sign me at all because I was damaged goods you know yeah yeah it was tough well uh so April 6 2006 that was fun uh, your first outing <laughs> as a knuckleballer no other pitcher had done this apparently since 1920 Six dingers off of you in four innings against the Tigers. 
Yeah, not 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 even quite four innings. So three and two thirds innings. Six home runs and three and two thirds innings, uh, which is a little bit worse. But it, I tell you what, it was. Uh, it's hard to get booed in Texas. People are so. Um, you know, the southern hospitality is as is at its peak there, and, and I was walking off the field, and I that was really the first time I ever audibly heard people yelling obscenities and booing me as I walked off uh, a field of any kind, and so that was a, that was hard. Man, let's see. Two th- I'm trying to do this cr- chronologically. I think is the word, but in t- I, I'm not quite sure of the whole order of this thing. But 2007, you're a father of three, and you decide to go drown yourself. In the Missis in, in the Missouri River, Mississippi River, I don't know some river down yonder. What? Yeah, that was in the Missouri. Yeah, I was a you know I had three kids and I was hanging on to trying to live a live out my dream and I was in AAA, which is the minor leagues, and you know a thirty something year old in, in AAA um, should probably get the hint that he's not going to get back to the big leagues. But I, I'm a pretty stubborn guy, and um, but we were in Omaha, Nebraska. I was staying at a, like Harris Casino and Hotel, and the Missouri River runs right behind the casino. And I thought, well, I'm not a very good baseball player anymore, but maybe I can become legendary if I can traverse the Missouri River and have all my teammates watch it. So I tried to do that, and you know, was was probably literally um, a couple of seconds away from 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 drowning. Um, but yeah. I, had a, I had a teammate named Grant Balfour who uh, was a big help and. And rescuing me. Yeah, I mean, you're like seconds away from deciding to take the big inhale. You know, you're literally yeah. crying, weeping underwater. Yeah, man, it was it was um, it was tough, man. I, I I was in a point in my life where I was, you know, still getting a lot of my identity and and what I did, you know, um, mm. and that was that was rapidly dissolving uh, right before my eyes. I was probably, you know, if someone, you know, was pitching a little bit better than I was and double a or someone got sent down from the big leagues i was probably going to be released i was not pitching well at all to start the season in 2007 in triple a so you know i was kind of claimed anything that would would make me look immortal i guess so when i when i tried to do that it just was i underestimated the current i'm a pretty strong swimmer um and it was uh you know i thought it was over i, I remember like thinking and and like asking god to to take care of my family because that was that was it so it was tough yeah on the phone with R.A. Dickey otherwise known on August 17th in 2008 as the wild thing or Charlie Sheen <laughs> so you tie the record for most wild pitches in an inning seriously yeah 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 you know I, I hold a few dubious records in the major <laughs> league most, most home runs given up in a game uh-huh. I uh, um, tied them a modern day major league record in 2006, like you pointed out, and then, and then I have the most wild pitches in an inning. And also, I think last year I gave up Derek Jeter's last career home run. Good for you. Uh, Good yeah, for you. I've been, I've been pretty hot lately. <laughs> uh, do catchers hate you? You know, it depends on what catcher you ask. You know, some guys, um, like for instance, Josh Tolley, who has caught probably 75 percent of my outings from 2010 until now um you know he's kind of made a living at it and so he's he's been able to really um, accumulate some big league service time because he has a skill that a lot of other people don't have so i would say he he loves it but there are um 
the majority do not like it. The majority find it very difficult to catch a knuckleball, and it kind of takes them out of their offensive game um, when they come up to the to, to the plate because it's so mentally draining. But there's a few guys. Russell Martin's another guy who's now with us. I think that's going to be really good at it. And what about Navarro? You know, Navarro, he, he doesn't. He doesn't really want any part of it. He's not shy. He's not shy about it either. He's like, yeah, I'll catch you in between innings, you know. But I'm not. <laughs> he did. I don't think he's ever called bullpen, to be honest with you. And that's okay. You know, some guys are just like that, where it's really hard for them, and it takes them out of their. You know, if you're used to catching a conventional guy over and over and over again, and then a knuckleball guy. It's it's totally different, and it can really screw you up when you have to catch the other guy. I was talking to my baseball buddy, Jack, and he wants to know if you have any say in the catcher situation because the Jays have three uh, riding and everything right now. You know, they're on the team, whatever. Do most teams have three on the roster? Yeah, well, most teams carry two catchers. There, there's um, a few instances where a team will carry three, but very, very few teams will ever do that because it, it just it kind of handcuffs you. But, um, you know... Both Josh Tolley and Russell Martin um, can handle it. So we have guys in the organization that can do it. On the present day roster, Russell Martin and Navarro are there. So if something happens to Russell Martin, I don't know what we're going to do. Um, we'll obviously have to call up Josh from Buffalo, which is our AAA affiliate, immediately. But he wouldn't be there in time to finish out the game. So Navarro would have to take his turn. I'd, bru- I'd bruise him up pretty bad. <laughs> Which uh, which batters have you had the most fun screwing with their minds at the plate? Right, like the ones you really wanted. You wanted to put the most amount of junk on the ball. Yeah, you know, there's been, uh, you know, the, the guys that I usually perform well against are guys who really are the power hitters. The guys who really try to, they think they see it because it's a much slower pitch than the the 95 to 100 mile an hour fastballs that they're used to seeing every day. So they think that oh, here comes a a slow knuckleball where I'm going to hit it out of the stadium. Yeah, but, that, but then they end up swinging like the cartoon character three That's times right. before it gets there, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so those guys I, I enjoy. You know, I remember throwing a baseball a couple of years ago when I was in New York Met, and I threw a good knuckleball and, and a, a power hit. I think it was Prince Fielder. He actually swung the bat, and then the ball hit him. So it, it moved so late and so much that when he, after he swung and missed, it hit him in the back foot. That's, that's hilarious. Fun. Yeah, that that's, kind of stuff. That's really funny, man. That's really funny. Okay, Nashville hometown, right? Uh, is that where you yeah. won the poetry competition? Yeah, yeah. I was seventh grader at an all-boys school there and submitted a couple of poems. And I think, uh, well, my, my teacher did, unbeknownst to me, really, and that was kind of the beginning of my writing career, I would say, is, you know, someone who saw something in me that that she thought was was valuable and i was able to kind of cultivate that over the next you know 10 years or so and was that at montgomery bell academy yeah montgomery bell academy home of the big red yeah the big red they've got they've got crazy uh athletics department at that school they've got a mat like a big old football field soccer field eight tennis courts a baseball diamond and a lacrosse field which i didn't even know you guys heard of down there yeah, no, it's it's that's a that's probably the number one growing sport in the South. I would say is lacrosse. Um, and our school, you know, I was really fortunate and blessed to go to a school that had a lot of amenities like that. Um, of course, you know, I, I kind of come from a lower middle income family, so I couldn't afford the tuition, but I got scholarshiped to go there, and it was uh, it was really a lifesaver for me. Didn't you get named smartest jock or something like that at University of Tennessee? I'm, I'm sure that's not the title of the award, but what? Some kind yeah, of... you know, I'm not sure. I, I, there's some of that stuff floating out there. I mean, there's a lot of smart guys on, you know, that 
that are jocks. But I, I, uh, I, I will say this: I, uh, I enjoy academia. I enjoy, um, you know, education, and it's been a big part of my life. Well, let's let's just jump into the the personal stuff here. So, parents separated. Mom is an alcoholic. Boy, you did grow up in the home of country music, didn't you? Jumping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, like a country music. And and then the you know the horrible darkness stuff is when you're eight years old, female babysitter sexually abuses you, and then later that summer you're pretty much raped by a, a, an older teenage guy, stranger, right? No one you knew. Yeah, just uh, a neighbor, just a neighborhood um, kid, I guess. I'm not really sure. Never cared to find out. So. The question that I'm sure you asked yourself and those who have heard of these sorts of stories or have had any experience with abuse, when uh, when multiple abuses happen to one person, there's got to be a why me thing that goes down. Yes? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, you get to a why me part, I think, initially. Um, you're, at that age, I can only speak from my own experience, of course. And When you're eight years old, you really don't have a, a context for that kind of stuff at least I didn't at eight years old you know I'm I barely knew um anything about the human body at that point much less what was going on when I was eight years old um through abuse so my, my first thought was was not so much why me but um my first thought was much more about how can I hide it how can I how can I um make like this never happened Man. uh so at 13 years old you kind of look skywards and decide to fully kind of do the whole I want to surrender to you God thing right you, you decide to become a, a Christ follower uh, for lack of a better description what was going what was going down in your life at 13 to to, to make that a reality well you know I had, I had tiptoed into churches before and, and always um, you know whether it was my grandmother or through a you know spend the night at a friend's house as I was growing um, up until I was 13 years old and so I, I didn't really have a, a great education about what um, Christianity was um, or anything like that, but I certainly I knew what church was. And, and so when I was 13 comes around, I started going to Montgomeryville Academy in the seventh grade, like I was telling you. And, and I, uh, I had a, a friend who invited me to a Fellowship of Christian Athletes meeting. And I was an athlete, so I was all, all you know, and I was also looking for for people who would accept me, and, and I thought this seemed like a good place to start. And I, so I, that's when I started getting involved uh, with my faith. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say that, I, you know, everybody has different words or vernacular for their spirituality. But in, in my, you know, I, I understood a triune God and, and that God was who He said He was and that He sent a Son, and so it started there for me foundationally. And I'm, I'm, I believe that and had an experience with that th when I was 13. You know, with, with all this, the junk that's gone down with you, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the, you know, the time in your life where you're sitting in a parked car with a hose in through the, in through the, the window and, you know, you're ready to kind of end life. Um, yeah. But I, I wonder about the shame cycle. Mm. Um, because there is a cyclical thing that happens, you know. It has to do with perpetrators and victims, right? So if you're if you're one who is making bad choices, then you feel lousy about it, and then you have like a repentant period, and then sometimes it drives you back in. You know, so there's a circular thing that goes down with with those who have. And I I know the word victim is loaded, and people don't want to be called it, et cetera, et cetera. But 
I don't know what else to call you. You know, as you're a kid who who was treated brutally, and and it should never have happened. Um, so I guess I got to get around to the question here eventually. Number one, you know, you, you must have. I mean, at least I would. I would have certainly looked upwards and gone, "Okay, God, where were you when that was going down?" Seriously. So that's number one. Number two, the shame cycle. Um, that's not an easy thing to shake. Is that still rear its head these days? Oh yeah. Well, I'll answer the first part of your question first, and that, that's a, a you know you're having some really good insights about what happens. I think. Um, you know the the whole the shame component is the most deadly component. Well, in my experience, to the the whole abuse scenario, um, and I had, and I you know there there were times where you know I didn't want anything to do with God because although I I, I acknowledged that He was there, um, I was so angry with Him and wrestled with Him and asked all the obvious questions about how could you let that happen to an eight-year-old boy and so on and so forth and my you know my you know i i believe that i'm a finite being you know so to talk to an infinite being you know there's i now understand that there's you know a little bit of um there's a chasm there and a mystery to that but at the same time i was having all the things that you alluded to you know i was questioning how that could be and um, but I was also feeling a lot of shame too to, to kind of leak into your second your second question. Um, you know, I, I always believed growing up before I got help um, that uh, I had something to do with it. Like if I would have done something differently, yeah. or if I, you know, ultimately, you know, this happened. But there was a part of this that was my fault. You know, and it's hard to shake that. And it makes you want to hide it. It makes you want to live in secret. It makes you want to develop mechanisms that help protect you um, from things like that happening again. I had huge trust issues. Um, all kinds of wounds, um, you know, were laying wide open for the majority of my adolescence and early adulthood. Man. You know, and this is this is a guy who's a reader. What, what's on your nightside table these days? What do you read? You've read The Life of Pi. That was a book that you were really into, apparently. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a while ago. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, uh, I I love reading. I love all kinds of books, whether it's... Uh, You're a C.S. Lewis fan? Uh, yeah, I love C.S. Lewis. Um, I, I, I like theologians who, um, even if I disagree with them, you know, I still enjoy reading, reading them and sometimes um, feel like I can get something from anything just about yeah. applicable to my life. So I, I don't really shy away from it just because it may be of a different ilk than maybe my, my belief system. Good for you. Good. Um, Good. But, but that being said, like I also enjoy some of the, the reading that is, uh, you know, less analytical or less spiritual. I, you know, like presently um, I'm reading a book called The Hawk and the Dove, which is just a novel, um, an old novel I, I read. The Master and Margarita recently, um, which is a good book. Um, so I've got all kinds of things um, on my bedside. You know, I've got a friend who was sexually abused when he was younger, and um, there were some parental issues as well, and a lot of his stuff got worked out through a book called The Shack. Did you ever read that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've read that multiple times. Yeah. Sure. That's my litmus test for whether I think you're you're a good person or not. If you think The Shack sucks, <laughs> I don't want to talk to you anymore. 
So. I enjoy that book. I do. Um, well, you're also into great philosophers, and I, I just want to know if you can. We're going to play you a clip from a philosopher, and uh, I think this is a, someone who's had a great influence on your life. So you have a listen to this clip, and you tell me uh, who it is at the end of it. Okay, here we go. I'll try. Always with you, what cannot be done. Hear you nothing that I say. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do. So there's the clip. Try not do. Try not do. Who said that? R.A. Dickey. Oh man, that is one of the best philosophers of our of our of our time and and beyond. Yoda. That's Yoda from the Megabus. Big round of applause for R.A. Dickey here in the studio. Thank you very much. Yeah, well done. Well done. Well, wherever I wind up, my quest for truth, authenticity, and the perfect knuckleball, it's been out a little while now, but it is a fantastic read. You can get his uh, his story, a lot of what we've been chatting about here in this book, but you can also uh, plug into where he's at now and what he's moving ahead with. And, uh, dude, you I mean, you stink of charitableness, uh, charitableness-ness. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Oh. Well, thank you. Well, let's just talk about Kilimanjaro. Holy heart attack! That much—that's crazy. Oh, that was fine. I would you. I think you would enjoy it. You would. You would find it to be enlightening. I, um, it was. It was great, and I. I was able to kind of do the climb in 2012 and attach it to um, raising money for um, an organization called the Bombay Team Challenge, which raises money for um, the defense of people who have been trafficked and rescuing people out of situations um in india uh, which is one of the main hubs for human trafficking right out of the you know they get people from nepal and people that don't even have a you know a social security number that that have no voice at all so it's it was great and um i learned a lot on the trip and was able to go to india to open up a clinic um that was kind of a conduit that would help rescue these women and children out of that lifestyle well, your whole life seems to be about control, and we'll finish it with this here. Um, control seems to be a key word for you, either as a coping mechanism, you know, you got to have control, you got to get control back. You know, a lot of anorexics, that's their issue as well. It's got nothing to do with whether they think they're overweight. It's about getting some sense of control back. Um, or or the other side, it, it control was maybe your biggest obstacle on your way towards career and spiritual success. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I would say that is. You know, I, I, I am, I know it sounds kind of corny, but I think daily I, my, my biggest struggle is how do I surrender some of that control? You know, because once you, and it, it's a perfect, what I do for a living is a perfect metaphor for that. Like a knuckleball, when you release a knuckleball, you have to kind of surrender to the outcome. You know, you can control the mechanic and you can control um, the consistency of uh the production of that mechanic, but once the ball leaves your hand, I mean, you have to really surrender to the outcome. Um, but if I'm invested in the, the process, then usually good things are going to happen. Well, you're everything. You're everything I hoped you would be. <laughs> oh. That's a little weird. Again, look, I there's there's a reason I don't interview a lot of athletes, and it's just been my experience hanging out with the guys I hang out with. I mean, look, I've I've had some I've got some good friends who are former NHL hockey players and. And uh, they've grown up, and um, you know they've got, they've got some depth. But I'm sorry, man. It's just you know you you and the boys just seem to be vacuous in so many areas in life. But you've got just an incredible story, an incredible 
authenticity about you. I think that's what has, and I don't know you. I'm just going off of stuff I've seen. But I think I could I could see through. Well, it was easy to see through because there was nothing to see through. I just think you're really ridiculously authentic, which which might actually burn you sometimes. I would imagine being so authentic. Well, being transparent can burn me. Sure, you know there are a lot of trolls out there that want to capitalize on yeah on things. And but I appreciate you saying that. I do. It's an encouragement. Good, good. Ari Dickey, Toronto Blue Jay knuckleballer. I hope you have a great season. I really do, man. Thanks a lot, Drew. I appreciate it. Good to chat. You too. Ari Dickey on the Drew Marshall Show. I like that guy. find quality guest speakers these days if they're interesting they're usually expensive and if they're cheap they're usually boring well here's someone who's both expensive and boring drew marshall is a high school dropout who tried to become a pro football player but didn't make it he then tried to become a firefighter and didn't make it now he's trying to become a stand-up comic (laughs) good luck with that mr marshall but if you're looking for someone who's unpredictable incredibly honest provocative genuine then we've got the right guy Everyone seems to be an expert on something these days. Why not book someone who's an expert on nothing? Except how to be brutally honest about yourself and your faith. To book Drew Marshall as your guest speaker, go to drewmarshall.ca. 